Miss the show, no worries, on point on the podcast. Former General John Vance faces obstruct justice charges. What will the fallout be for the Trudeau government, given they knew about the sexual misconduct allegations against him back in 2018 and did nothing with it? A Toronto family is asking the world to help save their three-year-old daughter who's got this very rare disease that will kill her and can only be cured by a very specific bone marrow donor who they can't find in this country and are asking for the world's help. And Justin Trudeau toughens his language on the Cuban government. What changed his tune? Let's get talking. Great to have you here on this Friday night. Former General Jonathan Vance, uh, now facing an obstruction justice charge um, with Global News learning that Canada's former top soldier is accused of witness tampering, specifically in instructing Major Kelly Brennan, who came forward back in January with allegations about sexual misconduct, uh, to lie about their sexual relationship. And not only did she tell Global News that she had an inappropriate relationship with her then boss, but that he fathered two of her children. These are allegations that he denies. But she also said at that time that Vance told her that he owns the military police and was untouchable. Well, apparently he's not untouchable. And Brennan claims now that she's got multiple recordings of Vance instructing her to, quote, say what to, of what to say, what not to say, what to exclude, to perjure herself and lie. This is a first. Uh, let's bring in now Colonel Michelle Drapeau with Michelle Drapeau Military Law. And uh, Colonel, uh, we have not seen this, uh, I think, in this country, the first um, where you get a chief of defense facing such a charge. Um, your reaction to it when you heard about this? You are right. We've never seen that. I mean, Canada had armed forces since 1867, and we've never seen any commanders, let alone the chief of the defense staff, uh, facing criminal uh, allegations in a court of law. Um, was I surprised by it? The answer is no. Uh, given all of the allegations that were made in the public, not anonymously, but uh, they were identified uh, and, and you named the person, and more so uh, when they were repeated on their, on their oath uh, during a parliamentary committee, uh, then, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, uh, you don't have to have a, 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 a law uh, training to understand that uh, there's something amiss in here, and uh, likely there would be either disciplinary or, or other form of, of action taken. Uh, so it took a little while to be, but I also knew, and I've, and I've spoken about that uh, prior, that if there were to be any charges laid against an officer in the rank of uh, the chief of the defense staff, he could not be tried or she could not be tried uh, before a court-martial just because of the rules that are in existence at the moment, they never anticipated ever that uh, an officer of this particular rank level would ever have to face uh, such a tribunal. And there is one of the rules in the uh, National Offense Act that says that uh, uh, an officer must be tried by 
via a panel, which is a jury, and the president of the panel must be an officer of rank equal or superior to his. And in the case of uh, somebody like General Vance, there's nobody, in fact, who has the same rank or higher rank. So by, by law, you cannot try him in a, uh, in a, uh, in a military uh, court. So it had to go to a civilian court. And I think in a scheme of things, this is as well as it should be uh, because mm-hmm. it, it's fairer uh, for him and gives the appearance of certainly better independence and better fairness and so on that a, a civilian court will look at this and, uh, and, and will, you know, he is considered to be innocent until proven otherwise and he'll have a you know, you have a chance to mount a defense. Uh, so that's the yeah. way it should be. So I'm not surprised by it. In fact, uh, for most sexual assault cases, I've argued and I've written extensively on it that I don't think that military tribunals are equipped to deal with that, and it should go to civilian court. So in this case, it's not accused of sexual assault, but it's related to it. And I think the proper court uh, is, a, uh, is a civilian court, as, as, the, as is the case now. When you uh, listen to the recordings and some of the language in them, Brennan alleges that Vance had told her that there were many consequences if she didn't follow his orders and that she'd be questioned by his wife, who is a lawyer, who would question her over and over if she didn't say the right things. And this is part of the coercion of her not, um, you know, disclosing their relation. And, and this alleged witness tampering happened back in February. He retired in April. Uh, so he was the chief of defense, um, you know, at the ten- ten- at that point. Uh, he was not the chief of, of defense at that point, but he was still active uh, in his duty. What does this mean then for the prime minister, you know, given that the complaint was brought to him in 2018, and instead of doing anything about it, the prime minister extended the man's contract and gave him a raise? Well, it raises questions, and I'm happy you do raise it, uh, because it's not as if this came out in the middle of the night, in the middle of nowhere. Uh, there were warning signs that uh, along the way, uh, that uh, surfaces, and there was, uh, there were complaints that were looked at previously by the military police, and the, and certainly, the Ministry of Defence and uh, and the Prime Minister were made aware where an allegation had been made uh, against the same gentleman. So, I mean, and you don't in this kind of thing, you don't get you know too many bites at the apples. Uh, mm. So. When these came up, it begs the question, which has been asked a number of times before parliamentary committees, at least two of them that I'm aware of. The Minister of National Defense uh, had a role to play, was given an opportunity to play it when the ombudsman came to him and said, listen, here's a, an email I would like you to take a look at, and it concerns the alleged misconduct of the, the then Chief of Defense Staff, uh, and there were other uh, issues that uh, came to the fore, uh, and through that, um, uh, certainly the minister never acted on it, and uh, and the prime minister was brought into at least the privy council office was informed of it, which is the department that looks after the uh, you know the business of of governing, uh, and and the prime minister, and nothing happened. So right. no, it it, it begs uh, the question has been asked, it hasn't been answered, and it, it needs to be asked again, and perhaps. That was an appropriate period to, to do so. What happened uh, with the higher civilian leadership uh, in, in ensuring, in fact, there is oversight over the military? 
and and the case in point was the chief of the defense staff for years you know the uh, the, the the complaints and and the uh, the concern were raised but um, for some reason they were ignored it was given a raise and so on and so forth so no i think we as as a society and and the people serving in the military deserve to have an answer Right. And given, though, that the prime minister, the office at least that we know of, I mean, the prime minister is hiding behind the court process, so he's not going to comment on this. But given his office, the minister certainly knew that there was a problem. Given all these people knew, um, you know, in light of, of the now charge, could the prime minister's office, uh, the minister, um, could could they be facing uh, any kind of, uh, you know, criminal action by, by um, no, you know, complainants? This is in the realm of... of Political uh, accountability, and of course, right. the, the the primary area of accountability is is an election. And I hope, and sincerely hope, that this issue will come up during uh, the debates, uh, so that uh, hard questions can be asked, and uh, and uh, you know, and, and uh, detail and realistic answer can be provided at the time, including, you know. We blew it. Uh, we didn't yeah. react to it. We didn't do our job. Uh, we didn't look after Canada's security. It did not look after the kind of, uh, you know, the kind of leadership that you require, particularly in in a quintessential organization establishment like the Canadian Forces. And that accountability ought to be obtained from not the ministry because he's not going to be campaigning uh, and he's not going to be debating publicly, but certainly Prime Minister is. I think we there's been sufficient debates into at least the two parliamentary debates, the two parliamentary committees sure. uh, th- that have gone unanswered, and um, you know, and 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 of course the election uh, campaign is an ideal time for it, and a prime minister, like any of his predecessors, will do anything they can to skirt the issue and not address them, uh, as as is the case at the moment. But we don't want him to opine as to the appropriateness or, or whatever uh, of the current court proceeding. Never mind this. Just tell us, in fact, why your government and, and your minister did not act when they had an occasion to do so. Yeah, instead doing the opposite of extending the contract and giving him a raise. Well, it certainly will be interesting, and uh, he does have his first court appearance on September 16th, likely around the time that there will be an election. Colonel, I very much appreciate your time. I know it's busy on a Friday night for you, so I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us. We'll chat chat again. Bye-bye now. That is uh, Colonel Michel Drapeau, who does military law. And so, look, the courts move very slowly, so there's no question this case is not going to roll through before any election happens, but it will, like we saw in the Vice Admiral Mark Norman case, it will drip out in time. And certainly when it does go to court, anything that the Prime Minister's office doesn't want out there will all come out, and I guarantee it will be very, very ugly. On Point on Global News Radio. on Global News Radio. Great to have you here with us as we get into a weekend. And um, this is one of those local stories, but the call for help is going worldwide uh, for the parents of a three-year-old Toronto girl who's got a very rare genetic disease and is in a race against the clock to save her life. Little Leia Falico has a condition called dyscoroid... I'm going to get this wrong. Dyscoroid... 
ptosis congenita congenita i'll get the parents to say it properly um it's a, a issue that causes her bone marrow to fail and when bone marrow can't make enough blood cells, it can be fatal. And the only thing that can save this child's life is a transplant with bone marrow. But sadly for little Leah, they haven't really been able to find a donor match because of her ethnic mix. So the family's now reaching out to the world with a campaign asking those of a Persian-European mix between the ages of 17 to 35 you know, if they can see if they're a match for their little girl. Marco and Shano Falico are Leah's parents. They join me now. Good to have you. Thank you for having us. Let me get the name of this thing right first, because it's so rare, and I was trying to sound it out. How do you say this particular kind of um, uh, disease, Shona? Um, it's called dyskeratosis congenita. It took us a little bit of time to figure it out how to say it properly, too. <laughs> let, let, us, let us go back before we talk about the campaign for Leah, who, uh, of course, we can hear there in the background, um, yeah. and will always steal the show. Um, when did you notice something was different or there something wasn't right? How does this particular disease present itself? Um, to be honest with you, the more I reflect, the more I realize that I feel like after birth, I almost felt like something was wrong. I don't know if you call it motherly intuition, but I always mm. felt like something was a little different and I was concerned, but I didn't realize what was going on until about two years old and she still wasn't walking and um, we ended up going to a neurologist for a whole bunch of other reasons and then that one thing led to another which led us to genetics and um, we ended up finding out we did a series of tests and um, three uh, genetic testing came back normal the fourth one they tested Marco and myself and Leah and something came back called dyskeratosis congenita which we were super shocked about because we had no idea what it was. We've never seen anything like that in any of our families. So it really shook us to our core. Yeah, and it's one of those rarities that is, um, you know, you hope that there'll be a, an automatic solution or an answer for Marco, and then it doesn't come. And as Absolutely. parents, you know, when you give birth, all you care about is the health of that child. Nothing else matters. And, and for both you and Shona, um, life with Leia has just been um, really this search for for a cure, and that that has got to be just the toughest. I mean, does does Leia does she know that there's something wrong? Does she feel um, any discomfort, pain? Does she know? Well, to be honest um, with you, we we our, our our goal is to always you know keep Leia happy. She has fun. She 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 does go to daycare. Um, you know, we, we we treat her like like any other normal three year old. We. We try to not discuss, you know, any any um, medical stuff in front of her. Uh, we try to limit mm -hmm. it. Obviously, when we go to, like, we were actually at the hospital yesterday. That was uh, what, from 2 p.m. till 12 midnight. Um, mm -hmm. And you just you just try to lighten the situation. Um, is she in pain? No. When her blood levels do drop, you can see there's a bit of a difference in her. She probably she's probably frustrated inside. She probably feels different, and she she and gets she yeah she, sorry she she also uh, acts out more. So she yeah, has right. tantrums a little bit more. Um, she is tired a little bit more. 
she, you know, like she'll bruise easily more, right. you know what I mean? So th- those are signs for us that, hey, like maybe her levels are dropping. And like in a week now, she's had, a, a, last week she had a red blood cell transfusion, like a hemoglobin transfusion. And then today, uh, yesterday, she had a platelet transfusion because a bruise came out of nowhere that we were quite concerned about. And we thought, okay, like we already know that she has low platelets. We need to go and, and, and see what's going on. So we went straight to sick kids. And her platelets ended up being at a very low level and uh, she needed a transfusion. So, you know, like these uh, transfusions are starting to become more frequent and that's always a, a bad sign. So this is this is why it's extremely important now. Like we got to really put it out there and, you know, people need to really help spread the news and the word and people really need to get swabbed. Because right. uh, we are looking for that 10 out of 10 match. That's important. And it has to be a 10 out of 10 match. What's the biggest threat, Marco, to her right now? Well, the biggest threat to her, obviously, is her is her bone marrow failure and us not getting her the, the perfect match that she needs. Right. Um, in order to have a successful transplant that, you know, will help her and cure her for years to come, she really needs that, that perfect match. Uh, that's going to, you know, give her that X amount of years that's going to give her, like 20 years, 30 right. years, we don't know. And, 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 and the less perfect it is, the less successful it will be. So this is, so, this is our – sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, and so you, you search Canada. I mean, you, you hope that someone in the family could be a match. You hope someone in the community might be a match, and then you've reached already all the way across Canada. There has been no match for this little girl because of this specific um, mix of Persian-European mix. And so you guys are reaching, and you've built this campaign called Swab the World, and, and this will help um, put the word out that hopefully someone can be a match, but also help with the costs of a clinical trial. So what are you looking for, and, and where geographically are you reaching, and, and how much time? Like, wh- what's the time parameter you guys have? And I'll start with you on this, Shona. Um, basically, for time, we, we don't know. It could be one month. It could be... Uh... <laughs> Sorry, it could be several months. It, you you can never really tell the body when it starts, the bone marrow starts failing. It, it could be either a slow process or it could be a fast process. So um, that's why we like we're, we're they they can tell whether or not time is on our hands or whether or not you need more transfusions more frequently together. So mm-hmm. her last blood transfusion was um, seven weeks ago. So that if they start becoming weekly, then it's a very dire need of her needing a bone marrow transplant immediately. Um, and yeah, we're, we're we're really reaching out towards everyone around the world. Uh, people can find her information. Um, all the links are on her website. Uh, it's www.journeywithlea.com. Um, there's a Canadian Blood Services link on there for Leia. It's blood.ca slash uh, Sorry, match, match for Leia and then swab the world. If you go on that website, it'll take you to wherever you are in your country, to whatever platform you uh, you need in your country. Um, and uh, yeah, swab the world is, is more of the international platform where they'll have every country's registry listed on there. So it's more so for those outside of Canada, so the U.S., you know, Europe, Asia. So they that's where they those people can go to uh, to register. 
And so, um, Marco, I mean, the bottom line is you need a match, um, and it doesn't matter at this point where it comes from, but it is, there's got to be a match out there somewhere. And once you do find that donor match, um, um, and hopefully that, that comes in um, faster, what happens then? Does, does the donor come to this country and become part of a clinical trial? Where, where does this procedure then take place? No, so the, the person that does become the match, everything is done in their, in their own country, within their own clinic, uh, which, which is great. So it's, it's easy mm-hmm. for them. Um, everything is done again there, they, and then they, they, they would ship it down to Toronto, where at Sick Kids, where, where the procedure would, would happen. Um, so, so for the actual donor person, it, it's quite simple. Um, it's, it's not, like, I think there's, there's a stigma that surrounds us where, you know, it's, it's a big operation, but it's really not. It's just it's right. just a, a, a simple blood draw, where um, you know it's, it's withdrawn the stem cells and they they, they ship to Toronto. That's really and, and there's really no risk to the person um, donating their stem cells. So exactly what Marco said. There's a stigma around it, and we like since right. we started this campaign, we've talked to a lot of people who have this completely entirely different vision of what it means to donate their stem cells. So. I mean, it's important to uh, do your research and create way more awareness around this because uh, we need to get rid of that scary stigma because it's beneficial not only for Leah, but so many other children in the world that are in such yeah. need of, um, of a stem cell transplant, and especially with so many mixed children nowadays. You know, they're in big trouble when you think about yeah. the fact that the, the blood services, or not the Canadian blood services, but just around the world registry, is only 3.5% mixed ethnic yeah. uh, donors. So, This is a, such a rare disease, uh, Marco. Is, is it curable? Uh, do, you be, do doctors believe that is it about sustaining life, uh, giving years to life, or do they believe that at some point they can be uh, find a cure? So, so um it, it definitely is a rare condition, and and every response we get from a doctor is that every person is different and presents differently. However, having the transplant definitely will be a cure for her bone marrow failure, and this is why it's very important that we find that perfect 10 out of 10 match that will give a successful uh, outcome for her. It's a tough road, um, no question about it for parents. I mean, I can I can hear Leia. You know, she's a, she's probably just impervious to everything and just wants to play and, and do her thing, which is what children should do. But certainly for you guys, this is a this is a pretty painful journey. Yeah, it, yeah, it definitely it's, is. Sorry, Marco. No, I was gonna say it's um, like especially February, March when we when we first got the news. It it was definitely hard for us as a family, not understanding it. Like Shana mentioned earlier, this is something we've never seen or, or even heard of before. Yeah. Um, it's, it's not like it runs in our family or any of our friends like, to even understand it. And Yeah, we, we had no point, one to relate to, right? So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was really hard too. And it just, I think we spent the two months when once we found out of being sort of like in denial about it, just... Yeah. We just spend days crying and trying to understand this and how it happened, why it happened. And, you know, you go through a process and um, it definitely makes you stronger um, as a family and individually. So, yeah. I mean, we're just trying to get through this and be strong for Leah. And, you know, there's a little bit of a, a lesson in all of this for us too, right? Leah remains so happy and 
and calm during everything that she has to go through. And we as adults, we worry, we stress, we're always like thinking about the future. So, you know, there's a little, uh, there's a little positive positivity in, in a little bit of this, you know, so we look at her and she's basically our motivation and our, you know, she's our brave little girl. We look up to her. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, look, um, we'll keep in touch and we'll hopefully get the word out there to the right person. But um, I thank you so much for sharing your story with us and certainly um, keep us uh, in the loop as to how things go. And uh, and we'll all hopefully bring some good news to this little girl. I appreciate your time. Great. Thanks, Alex. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good night. That is Marco and uh, Shauna uh, Falico. And and if you want to go check the page, it's Journey with Leia, spelled L-E-I-A, Journey with Leia. If you just Google that, it'll take you to the GoFundMe page. It'll explain um, what this little girl has, which um, is dyskeratosis congenita. Congenita. There, I got it after the fact. But it is a very rare disease, and, and what they're looking for is just a match so they can give this little girl, um, you know, a, a chance. Never mind second, third, fourth chances, but a chance. Um, to beat this thing. So again, journey with Leia, and uh, we'll see where this particular campaign uh, takes us. Gosh, what a what a nightmare for a parent to have to go through uh, any kind of illness with a child, but one that is so rare and has so few answers and so many unknowns. It's, uh, it really is just heartbreaking. And I'm Alex Pearson on point, and this is Global News Radio. Getting through to you. That's the point. Do you understand? There is a point. That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Listening. Cubans have the right to express themselves and to have their voices heard. We stand, as we always will, with the people of Cuba who want and deserve democracy, freedom, and respect. All right, great to have you here on the show. So it appears the Prime Minister has beefed up his language on the situation in Cuba, where we're seeing uh, bigger protests, the biggest since the fall of the Soviet Union. And earlier this week, Trudeau, Trudeau was waffling in his language using generic, you know, we stand with Cuba, blah, blah, blah. And this really angered Canadian Cubans who accused him of being too cozy with the Cuban regime. And it was also in stark contrast to a much tougher tone delivered by both conservative leader Aaron O'Toole and President Biden. So now for the first time, Trudeau has acknowledged that these protests are a political demand for freedom and democracy, not this made up narrative that it's about Cubans being angry about shortages of medical supplies. John Robson is a columnist with the National Post, also the executive director of Climate Discussion Nexus. He joins us now. Good to have you, John. Good to be here. These protests um, are not new. I mean, these have been building for months, uh, you know, against these repressive actions by the Cuban government and increasing human rights violations that really up until now have been ignored by the international community. Why has it been so hard in your mind for the prime minister to take a tough stance? I think that the Prime Minister has the regrettable tendency to be far more critical of failings in our own open societies than he does in closed societies that are hostile to us. He's got this problem with China, of course, and he's he's also had it with Cuba, and it didn't start with him and the Pluto families. And, of course, you want to be critical of your own society and aware of its failings, but you want to know the difference between a system that doesn't always live up to its ideals, and it's unfortunate, and a system that does live up to its ideals, and it's terrible. 
Repression is not some accidental byproduct or mistake on the part of the Castro regime. It's what it was founded on. And Trudeau has trouble with that concept, so he has trouble when he's confronted with it in practice. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you just look back to the death of Fidel Castro back in 2018 or 2016. Um, you know, he he issued this glorious, loving, you know, um, farewell to this, uh, you know, leader who was not lovable in any sense of the word. But the prime minister couldn't seem to see the difference between his personal and his family's personal connection to the man versus his authoritarian, cruel rule over the people of Cuba. And why would you have more personal relations with a tyrant? It just really doesn't yeah. seem to me to make any sense here um, that that you would uh, hold this person in high regard. And, of course, had Castro been an American ally, I think the Trudeau's were very aware of his failings. But the thing is that when, he is, uh, uh, when he's a communist, oddly enough, instead of making them more aware of it, it makes them less aware of it. Yeah, and I mean, it's interesting because earlier in the week, he, he put out this wishy-washy statement saying, you know, we stand with the people of Cuba, but it was in stark contrast, not just to Aaron O'Toole's comment, uh, but President, o- uh, President Biden um, openly condemned uh, the government and basically gave them the warning. Now, that may not do much. It might just be words, but it was certainly a tougher tone than our prime minister made. Do you get the sense that he had no choice but to issue a tougher, um, you know, statement just because uh, he was such an outlier? Well, I think that's part of it. And I will say, I'm not a huge Joe Biden fan, but he is kind of an old-time Cold War liberal. And so he's no friend of tyrants, right? But in this respect, Biden uh, is a lot mm-hmm. better than many in his party. Uh, but with Trudeau, it just you know, it takes him a little while to kind of realize that he looks ridiculous being uh, in favor of, of tyranny. And that, again, that he has to struggle to come to grips with the fact that there's such a thing as tyranny uh, other than... Uh, the kind that arises when Western societies don't live up to their ideals. The idea that there are people who really don't share our ideals and are very serious and ruthless about it is one that is intellectually difficult for him. And so I think that explains why it took him a while. I mean, again, yeah, as you say, you look at what he said about Castro when he died. That was uh, None of that stuff was true and very little of it was excusable. But he wasn't really taking the task for it. So... It surprises him now when people are saying, no, no, we actually do know that this man was a thoroughly bad man who did thoroughly bad things because he held thoroughly bad ideas. Yeah, and I'm not sure how much the Cuban vote matters to um, to um, Mr. Trudeau in this country, but they were quite vocally angered by him in this country, you know, suggesting that he's too tight with uh, Miguel Diaz Canal, um, you know, and that they that that you know this is a real moment of of change. Uh, are you of the mind that this is actually a turning point, or do you do you get the sense that this will um, you know filter out after a while? Because it is not in the daily news every day, and certainly you know with the internet getting turned off and Cubans being cut off from the world, where does it? Go? I think it is going to succeed, at least in the short run, because the Cuban regime is out of gas. You know, it's not just that it's out of gas in terms of ability to meet the material needs and desires of its people. I don't think the people in charge believe anymore. They know that whatever the promise was of 1959, it has not been fulfilled. And this is really what brings down tyrannical regimes, is when they lose faith in themselves. Like when the Berlin Wall came down, because it was an accident, the reading of a news item that was about something that hadn't actually been done, but was just contemplated. But when people started tearing down sections of the wall and crossing, 
the guards and those commanding the guards no longer had the will to give the order to fire. And I don't think the people in Cuba, they may not be in charge, they may not be very nice people, they may have a lot to answer for, but they do not, I think, now have it in them to order the massacre of thousands of people in order to continue to stagger down the same dead end they've been on for the last 60 years. I just don't think they believe anymore. Yeah. And interestingly, you wrote a piece earlier this week uh, in the National Post, and I thought it was interesting because, you know, here you have citizens taking to the streets and putting their life on the line, um, you know, to fight for freedoms, which, you know, a lot of Canadians have just shrugged their shoulders and kind of just walked away from in the last 16 months with this pandemic. Yes, and this was, I was looking at the Cuban protests and wishing them well and thinking it's, it's high time this happened. And then I thought, and if they came to us for advice, we would tell them, oh, yes, well, freedom means, uh, you know, freedom of speech, the executive can't silence you and so on. And then I thought, but if they looked at what we actually did, it wouldn't be as nearly as good a model for them as it ought to be, not that we live under tyranny. But we live under a situation in which freedom has been nibbled away, that we are being enervated, that we are being suppressed by conformity and over-regulation and all the kinds of little habits. The fact that you have free speech unless you say something offensive or, you know, online. The fact that you have freedom of contract unless you want to do something other than what the union says. And the fact that you have the right to own property, provided you do with it what the government wants you to do with it. But in all kinds of little ways, if the Cubans tried to make sense of the principles of liberty by observing what we were doing in practice, or by looking at things like the theory of Section 1 of our Constitution, it wouldn't be a guide to them. And I thought this was very sad. And at the same time, therefore, that we should be welcoming what they're doing and telling them freedom of speech means a parliament that controls the executive. Freedom of speech means an independent judiciary. Freedom of speech means mm. freedom of fear. But we really needed to get back ourselves to living as free people and not been told, shut up, that the experts have spoken. Not seeing the executive branch suing the Speaker of the House of Commons for asserting that yeah. Parliament has the right to see documents. Not having hate speech laws. As long as you're not creating a clear and present danger or engaging in conspiracy or fraud, you're free to be obnoxious because we trust your fellows to reject you because you're obnoxious. We need to get back to all of that, but we're not much used to the Cubans, except as an example of what not to do either for him once you get it. Yeah, we seem to have uh, taken for granted the freedoms we've got because too many people are uh, accepting these new norms as uh, status quo and seem comfortable with it. But nonetheless, we'll watch what keeps going on. John, I very much appreciate your time on this and uh, have a great weekend. Thank you. John Robson, of course, you can read him in the uh, National Post where he always uh, has a very interesting perspective on today's uh, issues. That's on point. Alex Pearson, Global News Radio. Thanks for listening. Of course, you can join us Monday through Friday live starting 630 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson on point. This is Global News Radio.